The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So the rest of us will go over uh, our sermon of the day. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7 primarily, and then we're going to look at several other passages throughout Scripture that complement the truth that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For those of you who haven't been with us, or maybe you're just visiting so you know, we are going through 1 Corinthians together. We started at chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through to the end of the book because that's how Paul wrote it to the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago. That's how he wanted it to be studied and read and proclaimed to the local church. And so that's what we're doing. We're reading it in context, and we're going section at a time. We are now in chapter 7. We started chapter 7, verse 1 last week. Uh, and we're going to stay there today and finish that. Next week we'll be in chapter 7, verses 2 through 7, and then we'll just keep plugging along about a paragraph at a time through chapter 7. Uh, we're in a section of Corinthians where Paul is addressing uh, purity or moral purity and here sexual purity of Christians. Earlier in the book, chapters 1 through 4 was about unity of believers and resisting division in the church and among Christian relationships, and here it's uh, the purity of the church in terms of its moral purity, chapters 5 till about chapter 8, and then at the end of the book, it gets into more theological issues and related practical matters, so that's just to give you kind of a big context uh, here on moral purity. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, so that we have this verse 1 in context, as it should all stay together. So Paul says, Starting at verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men or people, believers really, were even as I myself am. However, each person has his own gift from God, one in this manner, and another in that. Last week we talked about, even though Paul doesn't use the word sex, that's what this section is about, and it's physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. And in context, it's he's talking about physical intimacy between a Christian husband and a Christian wife. There are other scenarios he's going to deal with after this where you have maybe a Christian husband and an unsaved wife and how they relate to one another but here it's a christian husband and a christian wife and how they should relate to one another in terms of their physical intimacy with one another so that is the context and we introduced verse one last week and we covered point one in the outline at just three big points there number one was the correct translation of verse one in chapter seven which was actually a big deal and i pointed out if you had a niv from 1984 or before you probably had the wrong translation of verse 1 where it said now concerning the things about which you wrote it is good for a man not to marry that is wrong that's a horrible translation and like i said in 2011 the niv finally fixed that and corrected it that literally it says it's good for a man not to touch a woman which is totally different than saying it's good not to marry marry getting married is a good thing getting married is a blessing from god as a matter of fact getting married is god's kind of ideal for the majority of the human race since the beginning of Adam and Eve. Uh, staying single with the gift of singleness is the exception, and he's going to talk more about that. So marriage is a good thing. It is a blessed thing as created and intended by God, and so we needed to make that clear. And so we just tried to explain that uh, very clearly, that we need the right translation of any given verse before you get to applying it to your life. Very important. Uh, so knowing the original languages is a big help in that and understanding context as well. Um, so we covered all that uh, in point one, and then we began point number two, and that was the corrupt interpretation. After the correct translation, we talked about the corrupt 
interpretation, and I put points A through F there. And these are kind of corollary assumptions or statements or beliefs that people make that are wrong. People who have a wrong view of what the Bible has to say about physical intimacy or sexual intimacy. There are more than this, but these are the most popular ones that you might hear as they're proliferated. We addressed the first one last week, and that was uh, the wrong view, letter A, that some people say, or actually many believe, it is more spiritual to be celibate for life than to marry. And so we gave attention to explaining why that is just not true. Whether you're single and celibate, or whether you're married, you are equal before God. Neither one is more spiritual than the other. Uh, So we made that point. So we're going to pick up at point B and go all the way down to point three, and uh, we'll finish, Lord willing, today. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, So point number two, I want to address B through F, and that is wrong views people have about biblical sexuality, or just sexuality in general, or physical intimacy, based on their worldview or things they've heard. Uh, And then I also put in the notes for you, we're going to look at a lot of verses that talk about sex, But you will note, as we read the Bible on those verses, the Bible actually never uses the word sex. It uses euphemisms. It uses metaphors. Uh, It makes implications. It is always guarding this gift of God, sexuality, in sanctified language. Because it is sacred. So we don't refer to it or speak of it flippantly or crassly or in a denigrating manner or in an overly detailed, clinical, explicit manner when it's not necessary, as the world so commonly does because their worldview about physical intimacy is the antithesis of what God says it is. And so as a result, I keep, I, I'm using the phrase personal physical intimacy to kind of represent God's view of sexuality. And so the acronym there was PPI there. Uh, So let's go on with that in mind. Let's go on to point B through F on wrong views of personal physical intimacy. Uh, B, many would say that, uh, and this is kind of in the religious community, that personal physical intimacy is only for procreation. Only for procreation. Uh, This is not a biblical view. There are many reasons why a man and a wife should have personal, physical intimacy with one another. Those are all delineated in Scripture. We're actually going to look at those in point number three. Suffice it to say that even early on in the church, as early as the second century A.D., some legitimate bishops, elders, pastors, Bible teachers had distorted wrong views of physical intimacy. And then they actually started teaching those wrong views and it actually infiltrated the church because they were influential men. And much of that wrong teaching has actually stayed inside the church, either as a remnant or as a main foothold for 2,000 years. And we see the evidences of it today in certain pockets of the church worldwide of having a wrong, very narrow view of physical intimacy, even within the context of marriage. And that is the only time husband and wife should get together is if they intend to produce a child, and that's it. They should not have physical intimacy for any other reason. I mean, literally, I mean, I could quote some of the early church fathers who said it should not even be enjoyed. And if you're enjoying physical intimacy with your spouse, that is fleshly, it is sinful, and you need to refrain from doing it. And if you actually enjoyed it, then you need to repent. I am not kidding. This is what they believe, and this view is still held by some today who are even writing books about it, some of which I've come across. So that's wrong. That is corrupt. Let's go on to point C. Another wrong view about physical intimacy is some would say that, uh, and this isn't just in the religious community, this would be actually primarily in the world, wrong view from the world about physical intimacy or what they call sex, is that physical, uh, personal physical intimacy is not a spiritual issue. Not a spiritual issue. Sometimes they'll say it's not a moral issue. This would be the view, the view of like Hugh Hefner, who... Um, is sexually immoral and has made a business of doing that and has been doing it for decades and has really polluted our community, if not the world, with his wrong views of sexuality and has gone on record for five decades saying that human beings are nothing 
more than animals as a result of millions of years of evolution. And as a result, that's how we should view sexuality, just as animals do. And it's strictly biological. It's a strictly biological function. That is exactly what he says. That is his worldview. And that's a dominant worldview of the secular unsaved world. And so they demean this blessed gift of physical intimacy, bring it down into the gutter as though we are just animals. Therefore, it doesn't matter if you have more than one partner, many partners, and no relationship and commitment necessarily tied along with that because there isn't any of that in the animal world. So that is wrong. That is incredibly deceptive and even, I would say, evil, satanic. Point D, another wrong view about physical intimacy. Some would say that God and the Bible have a negative view of sex or a negative view of personal physical intimacy. That's a false caricature that we hear frequently from the world, from critics of the Bible and critics of Christianity. And they'll find some scapegoat. They'll find some uh, straw man or maybe even some example from church history where they can actually point to this so-called Christian author or Christian leader or Christian Bible teacher to make their point. But they're not representing what the Bible has to say on this. But that's kind of a general idea of the world because Christians will say, well, sexuality or physical intimacy is supposed to be in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and wife only. And those are the only parameters by which it's legitimate. And so in today's world or just to the sinful world, that seems myopic. It seems restrictive. It seems narrow minded. And they call it prudish. That's their attitude. And sometimes they'll use the word puritanical. Where'd that come from? Well, the some conservative Bible-believing believers back from England a couple of centuries ago who did take Scripture very seriously. And one of the issues that they took very seriously is that the Scriptures call us to not be of the world but in the world and also to separate from the practices of the world that are unholy and impure. And they applied that literally to all of their life. And it included their sexuality and their marriage and their relationships and so they believed that sexuality was to be between strictly a man and a woman alone and anything uh, outside of that was sinful and that offends the world the unbelieving world that there are these standards and that there's moral accountability and spiritual accountability for violating that outside the marriage relationship and so uh, the puritans were strong on this issue of separation uh, purity, holiness. Some of these Puritans actually were a wee bit legalistic in many areas, although they were Christians. And yes, at times there was a Puritan here, a Puritan there, who was overly legalistic on this issue of sexuality. And so it wouldn't be a surprise that you could find a Puritan who wrote 200 years ago that sexuality was only reserved for procreation and not to be enjoyed for any other reason. And so that might be used as a straw man to say, see, you Christians are prudish and myopic and have a wrong, very negative view of personal physical intimacy. But God doesn't. God has the perfect view of physical intimacy, as does the Bible. We're going to see that in a little bit. So that's a false caricature. Let's go to the next one. What else do people say that misrepresents God and his word? Well, some say that the Bible does not talk, talk much about sex at all. Or the Bible doesn't really address or talk a whole lot about personal physical intimacy. There are many people who believe that. Uh, I would challenge you, go someday. Take a survey. Take your clipboard. Go to stand in the parking lot of Safeway. And as people come out, ask if you can take a survey and ask them uh, what they think the Bible says about this issue of physical intimacy or sexuality. And if you had a specific question that address this issue. Do you think the Bible talks much about sex? Uh, a dominant answer you're going to get is, no, not really. It's, it's about those religious and spiritual things and heaven and hell. And that means that they haven't really read or studied the Bible. They are naive and ignorant because the Bible talks much of physical intimacy. It's pro it probably talks about it more than most of us realize. Did you know that sexuality is referred to in the first chapter of the Bible? As a matter of fact, I want to take you on a jet tour right now through Genesis. Sexuality is all over the book of Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to move quickly. And sexuality is referred to either directly or by innuendo or by illusion or metaphor 
or by implication. Starting in Genesis chapter 1, these people who say, well, sex isn't in the Bible. Yes, it is. On day 6, God created the first two human beings. Verse 26, God says he's going to do that. Verse 27, God did that very thing, created the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And then in verse 28, God blessed them. And he said to them, as a matter of fact, the first thing that he said to Adam and Eve was, you need to have ongoing personal physical intimacy. Can you imagine? That was the first thing he told them. That's verse 28 of Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. That's what that means. That is a euphemism. Be fruitful. What does that mean? That means have sex with your spouse, to be graphic about it. Have ongoing physical intimacy with your spouse. So, yes, it's in the Bible. That's just one example. Go to chapter 2. God performs the first wedding. Uh, Adam is alone in verse 18. That is not good. He needs a partner. God gives him a partner in Eve. Uh, then there's Adam and Eve, and God performs the first wedding, and that's the end of Genesis chapter 2. And, uh, and then uh, Adam is awakened. He sees his new bride, Eve, this beautiful woman created as a perfect complement for him, and then God performs the first wedding. Uh, verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife in marriage, cleaving Tightly knit together, that's another reference innuendo to physical intimacy with one another. There it is in chapter 2. They shall become one flesh. They were naked and not ashamed. Uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Now, the man, that's Adam, called his wife Eve. Why? Because that means the mother of all the living. The mother of all the living. How does a woman give birth? By sexual intimacy with her husband. So there's another implication of sexuality going to chapter four verse one now the man adam i think the king james says now adam knew his wife and then she became pregnant that's what the greek septuagint literally says adam knew his wife and as a result of knowing her she became pregnant hint hint wink wink do you get the illusion there it's Adam had physical intimacy, conjugal relationship with his wife, and she became pregnant as a result. So there's another direct reference to sexuality, physical intimacy between husband and wife, chapter 4. Chapter, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of another son. He became the father of another... Okay, put the... Yeah, read between the lines. Another son was given birth to Eve as a result of Adam and Eve and their physical intimacy Blessed by God as husband and wife. So there it is. It's in all four first five chapters of Genesis. Let's keep going. Genesis chapter 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Wow, how do human beings multiply? There's only one way. It's physical intimacy. There it is in verse 1. And then it gives another example. Verse 4. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men. That's pretty explicit right there in Hebrew idiom. When men began to or were coming into the daughters, that is physical intimacy. That is sexuality. Verse 10, Noah became the father of. There's another reference to it. So we're in the first six chapters uh, in Genesis. Go to chapter 7 of, verse, uh, of Genesis. Chapter 7, verse 8. There's a reference to sexuality between animals in verse 8 and 9, that they would reproduce themselves. That's between animals. Chapter 8, uh, there's a reference in verse 17, where God says to Noah, his family, he had three sons. They're wise. When you get off the ark, you need to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's another direct reference to physical intimacy between husband and wife. Verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. And the sons were born to Noah afterwards as a result of physical intimacy with their wife. Chapter 11, we go on and on. Chapter 12, it's more explicit. Promise to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And so you just see it all throughout the book of Genesis. Oh, and one of my favorites in Genesis, turn to... Um, Actually, we'll get to that one under a different point. Uh, we'll, we'll get to talk about that one. So the Bible does talk much about sex. Actually, there is a theology of sexuality in the Bible that is complete, it is comprehensive, it is specific, it is sufficient. So we should have a, a, literally a theology of physical intimacy as given by God and one that is comprehensive and sufficient for all of our needs. Last wrong view, that would be point F. 
Some believe that sexual intimacy refers to coitus only. Coitus only. Um, Coitus is actual physical intercourse between a man and a woman. The very act of that. And they would limit physical intimacy. They would limit sex to that just one act. And that's a very narrow view of sex or physical intimacy, but many people believe that. But actually, from God's point of view, physical intimacy, sexual intimacy is way more than that. It's more than the act of coitus or intercourse. It's way beyond that. It's even how actually biblical sexuality or biblical romance or biblical physical intimacy uh, even is in the areas of non-physical contact between husband and wife. It can just be words that are exchanged or gazing at one another. And the best example of this would be Song of Solomon. So I want to give you an example so go to Song of Solomon. They, they do say that in the Hebrew culture, or some culture, I don't know where it is, I forgot, that if you're not 30 years of old, then you can't be reading the Song of Solomon, but I am going to allow you, if you're 29 and under today, to take a peek at Song of Solomon. I hope you have parental permission to do that. So let's go, uh, the middle of your Bible, one of God's holy books in the wisdom books, Song of Solomon, chapter 1 just by way of example, because I want to look at another one in Song of Solomon a little bit later. Uh, Song of Solomon is after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We believe that the Song of Solomon was written by Solomon, King Solomon. We believe that it was written about his first wife when he only had one wife and he was faithful and committed to her. And so it is about their marriage, but it's about the physical intimacy and the romance in their marriage that is blessed by God, that is given by God as a gift to a married couple that he sanctions, that he blesses. And so look at chapter 1, verse 15. And this is where physical intimacy, sexuality, and romance goes beyond just being physical with one another. This is in how you talk with one another, which is part of the romantic, intimate experience. And they model that for us in verse 15. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. And he's saying, they're saying this as husband and wife or those who are to be one. How beautiful are your eyes are like doves. That, that is a compliment, by the way. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses, our cedars, our rafters, cypresses. So here's this. It begins with this verbal exchange of romance and building up the physical intimacy uh, that would culminate physically later. And it's all throughout the book. Chapter five or chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. Chapter 4, verse 1. So here, uh, Solomon is looking at his young, beautiful bride, and he actually is romantically wooing her and blessing her and encouraging her in a romantic, intimate moment as husband and wife. And he begins to compliment her from head to toe, literally, about how beautiful she is to him as his rightful wife. And he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. So he starts up at the head and the face. Everything about her is just beautiful to Solomon. He's biased. He's prejudiced towards his young wife about how beautiful she is. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Isn't that romantic? Your hair is like a flock of goats. That'll win your wife over every time. Don't call your wife a goat. You're supposed to say her hair flows like... Well, anyway. Um, they have descended from Mount Galette. So she's got this long, flowing, beautiful hair. The idea. The eyes, the hair. So he's still looking at her head. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes. So he's looking at her beautiful teeth. This is before braces. They are white. By the way, we know from the context that she is a dark-skinned woman from being out in the sun and just by virtue of the fact that she's Middle Eastern. So she's a dark-skinned woman. And so uh, contrasted with her teeth, they're just beautiful white teeth. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins and not... One among them has lost her young. She doesn't have any missing teeth yet. That's appealing, right? This guy is a practical guy. Still looking at her face and her mouth. Uh, Verse 3, your lips are like scarlet thread. 
appetizing to him and your mouth is lovely. Your temples, now he's looking at the side here of her face or your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Verse 4, and then he starts to go down to her beautiful neck. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. And verse 5, and you're, well, anyway, we'll pick that up later. Um, so, and he goes on to describe the rest of her body. And like Paul said in Corinthians, the wife belongs to the husband. The husband belongs to the wife. But the point is that there's an entire experience with multi-dimensions that is involved in the romantic and physically intimate process. So keep that in mind. We can't have a narrow-minded, superficial, crass view of sexuality like the world would have us. So that's the corrupt interpretation. Those are views we need to remove from our worldview. If at all we have ever struggled with those or even think those, we need to, uh, th- we need to be reprogrammed in this area of divine sexuality. So let's go on to point number three the Creator's declaration, the divine purpose of sex. So I referred to this a little earlier. Uh, A through E. Here's five main reasons that God gave sexuality and physical intimacy to husbands and wives. These are in Scripture. There are actually more than these. These are the main ones, though. So let's take note of that. Let's go to our Scriptures, and we'll peruse some of these texts. But let's look at these main points of why God gave sex to the human race first reason that God gave physical intimacy was point A is for procreation. Procreation, I just read it, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. First thing God said is be fruitful and multiply. Be physically intimate with one another, and as a result, with the blessing of God, the wife will become pregnant. They will have children. That is God's design. Multiply. Have as many children as you can or as God would allow you to have or that he would bless you to have. Being pregnant and having children is a wonderful thing. It is a blessed thing. This is the Christian worldview. This is the Christian ethic. Children are not a ball and chain. Children are not dangerous to the world. This is the worldview of the world, by the way. In the 1960s, there was a popular book that was written. It was called The Population Bomb. It was actually by a professor up at Stanford. And his theory was that, well, our world already, we are overpopulated as it is with our 4 billion people, and we need to stop having children and people need to refrain and not produce children if you do uh, you can only have one kind of like china has been doing for quite some time because we have too many children and too many people we're going to overpopulate the world and we're going to consume all of our resources and if we keep doing that at the rate that we're going uh, by 1999 this world is going to be over and he was wrong Um, so that was literally a best-selling book that ended up trickling down into the fabric of the entire world and especially the american culture and into the political realm, and the political agenda. And it's alive and well today, this idea where the government and government leaders and world leaders want to dictate whether we can have physical intimacy or at least how many children we can have. And that's actually been mandated and employed in countries of the world today. And even historically. You can't have children. You can't have children with this kind of person or this kind of ethnicity. You can't have more than one child. Uh, and on and on it goes. And that is the danger of an oppressive government that doesn't understand God's beautiful will of humanity is when God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that meant have children, have many children, because children are a blessing from the Lord. And this is how God has designed to perpetuate the human race until it comes to culmination according to God's plan. And then God had the flood and he judged the world and there were eight people left. And when those eight people got off the ark, God said the same thing. And he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And God has not reneged on that command, despite what the population bomb said. And by the way, that's a lie to say that four billion people are too many and we don't have the resources on earth to sustain four billion people. That is a lie because now we're at seven billion people and... When it comes down to it, there's plenty of space on the world for seven plus billion people and there's plenty of resources. God knows what he's talking about. He is in charge. It is his world. It is his human race. And he's got a plan for world history. He knows how it's going to culminate. It's right on schedule. And he continues to tell his people, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and children are a blessing from the Lord. So let's be reminded of that. So go to Psalm 127 and just be reminded of this great Psalm because this is still true today. When you read the Old Testament... 
many times as you're turning to Psalm 127. Whether it's talking about Sarah or uh, Rebecca or all these godly women all throughout the Old Testament. And then in Samuel, you get there with Hannah. Many times when these women conceived, the writer of Scripture says that God opened the womb. So for a woman to become pregnant is not strictly only a biological act. God created all of us. He created us in his image. He still still superintends the process. Yes, he uses natural means, but they came as a creation from him. But spiritually speaking, God's commentary is anytime a woman becomes pregnant it is that God Almighty opened the womb. It is a gracious act from him. Life is a beautiful thing from God's point of view. Psalm 127 uh, talks about the home. And then in verse 3, it says, Behold, behold, don't forget this. This is emphatic. Children are a gift from Yahweh. The fruit of the, the womb is a reward. So there's no such thing as an unwanted pregnancy from God's point of view. Yeah, there's sin and compromise on the human side, but from God's point of view, the fruit of the womb is a reward. And every human born is made in God's image. They are all precious. They are all sacred to God the Creator. So that needs to be our view of procreation, fulfilling God's mandate. Uh, so if you're getting married and you're a Christian and you're a believer, you should be thinking. That should be a part of your worldview and basic thinking that God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. If I am getting married from God's point of view, that I should be a candidate for being fruitful and multiplying and fulfilling the earth and having that great privilege of being a steward over children if God so wants to bless me with children and open up my womb. So yes, uh, that is a basic reason or divine purpose of physical intimacy, procreation. Let's go on to the second one. Uh, another divine purpose of physical intimacy is partnership. Partnership. They shall become one flesh. Actually, that should say Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24, they shall become one flesh. Before I, I mentioned this last week. Before sin entered the world, before Adam and Eve were sinful, when God created Adam, the first man, Genesis 2.18, God immediately declared after creating Adam, it is not good for the man to be alone. That is not good. Adam needs a compliment. He needs a wife. That will be good. No, that is very good. According to Genesis 1.31. From God's point of view. And the fact that God said, Adam will not be sufficient without his partner. It is not good that Adam is alone. Therefore, God created the perfect compliment to bless Adam. And this idea of being the perfect complement is by design. That is God's perfect design, which for us gives us the biblical definition of marriage. Marriage, from God's point of view, from the very beginning, from the first two people, is one man, one woman, committed together before God the Creator for life. That is God's ideal for marriage. And that is God's definition of marriage and has been and always will be, even into the future. Marriage is not a political issue to be debated in terms of its definition, or voted upon, really. I mean, we can cast our vote as Christians, but God's already declared what marriage is. He's already defined it 6,000 years ago. It's one man, one woman, before God, for life. There are no alternatives. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, he is clear. Any alternative to that, he calls a deviation, an abomination, or sinful behavior. That hasn't changed. And we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 7 next week as well. So that's God's definition. But this idea of being a compliment that Adam was uh, not sufficient by himself of what God had called him to do as a human. And that's why God gave females to the human race to compliment the man. They shall become one flesh. And I call this partnership. That's a divine purpose for marriage and physical intimacy. He goes on to say in chapter 2 uh, that they shall become one flesh. So a man is... He finds his candidate who will be his wife. He leaves father and mother. He leaves his family. He cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And this phrase, they shall become one flesh, is repeated in the New Testament in a couple of different contexts. And there are many implications to what it means to be one flesh. So today, if you are married, here are some of the things that it means to be one flesh with your spouse. It's not just the sexual act. That is not all that is included. And when it means 
uh, to be one flesh. When you become married to your partner, to your spouse, to your husband, to your wife, you are one flesh sexually in terms of ongoing physical intimacy with one another, serving one another with pleasure through that act and experience. It's actually a ministry to your spouse. But you become one flesh sexually, meaning you are not having that experience with anybody outside the context of your spouse. So you become one flesh sexually. You also, ideally, from God's point of view, when you get married, you are to become one flesh emotionally. As God knits your hearts together, when your wife is grieved by something, hopefully the husband becomes grieved as a result, uh, and vice versa. You become emotionally one with your spouse by God's design. Also, you become one socially with your spouse when you get married. Socially, you're together. You're a couple, you're, but you're an item. You are one. Oh, there's that couple. So many couples, they model this. They are together. They're together serving in ministry. They're together as they go socially and interact and uh, things that they do together and spending time together. And they're a social entity together. And that is by God's design. That's, I think of Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila, you look in the book of Acts, it's Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. They are inseparable. And that is God's design. That's a beautiful thing. That is God's intention. If, you, if you're married and your spouse doesn't want to be around you and you are separated and you're not socially together anytime, that's not normal. That's not ideal. That is not God's design. You're married, but you're the never the twain shall meet. Living their independent lives together. There's something wrong with that scenario. Undermining God's ideal. How else are husband and wife one flesh? They are one flesh legally. I mean, that's true even in the unsaved world here in america at least in california if you get married you have to be married legally there has to be an ordained sanctioned authority to recognize the marriage is legitimate whether it is the church whether it's the local courthouse uh, but it is a legal matter and a legal issue and rightfully so marriage is a legal action Uh, when we fill out our taxes we fill out a joint return my wife and i are considered one legally from the government's point of view that's totally legitimate because that's what it means to be one flesh Uh, to be one flesh ideally is for christians for you if you're a believer you need to be marrying a fellow believer and the two of you are one flesh together spiritually you are like-minded in your faith and like-minded in your religious experience and like-minded in your ministry together and the church you go to and where you worship together that is god's ideal but because this world has fallen and because we are sinful the ideal has exceptions or bumps in the road along the way and so god has a solution for that as well there are people very common where you have a mixed marriage where one is a christian and one is not a christian and that scenario kind of messes everything up in terms of god's ideal of being one flesh that complicates issues makes life difficult and so we're going to see how Paul, he explicitly addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7. So we're going to get to that, where there isn't unity or one flesh in terms of the spiritual realm with husband and wife. And then finally, husband and wife are uh, one flesh biologically or physically, meaning when they come together and have physical intimacy and the wife becomes pregnant and they give birth to a child, that child literally is the one flesh of mom and dad together. And so the byproduct of a marriage relationship of physical intimacy between husband and wife is seen most tangibly and concretely in your offspring and in your children. And that's why many times when you, if you have children between husband and wife, then husband and wife can look at their children and say, oh, I can see myself in that child, whether it's physical features. Look at how cute he is. He looks just like daddy. Maybe you've had those kind of arguments with your spouse or whatever. Or their temperament, oh, that came from so-and-so, the mom or the dad. Or their sinful behavior, well, that came from you. No, that came from you. I know your grandpa. I know your dad. But the idea is, they are no, they're from both of you, actually. They've got your genes. They've got, uh, so it's amazing. But that is also true that physically, you become one flesh through your offspring, literally. Uh, so that's point number two. God's divine purpose of physical intimacy is for procreation to be having children, which is a blessed thing, and also for partnership. For it is good for man not to be alone. Unless you have the gift of singleness and you choose that road, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, Letter C, the next divine purpose for physical intimacy is pleasure. It is to be enjoyed between husband and wife. And that's the only context it is to be enjoyed between husband 
and wife. And this does fly in the face of some religions, not just Christianity, uh, some wrong views within the Christian church historically. But uh, we already read uh, Song of Solomon, where uh, Solomon and his wife are going back and forth, and they're enjoying each other. There's pleasure in it. There's excitement. They are fulfilled. It involves the emotions and the senses. And it's not just for procreation. It's to be indulged in and enjoyed and lavishing each other's love upon one another. That is God's design. Uh, look at Proverbs 5.18. So we're still in the middle of the Bible uh, in those wisdom books. As you read Proverbs, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's a good reminder as we're going to Proverbs chapter 5. 31 chapters in Proverbs. This book was given by God originally to the Jewish culture to moms and dads to use this as a guide to train their children as they're growing up about all areas of life, including human sexuality and getting ready for marriage and how to choose a mate and how to choose a friend. And so there's these ongoing warnings to the younger men. Okay, young man. Okay, young teenager. Okay, young middle schooler. Let me remind you from the Proverbs. Stay away from the adulterous woman. Stay away from the illegitimate woman. Stay away from uh, the woman who is a sinful woman and tries to tempt men by simply her exterior and her temptress ways outside the context of marriage. That is a repeated reminder all throughout Proverbs to young men. Because young men have to be confronted with this, this worldview and also dealing with the fact that they're becoming men and their hormones are kicking in as well. That's a part of their manhood. And they need to think about, wow, what do I do with these hormones and these desires that I didn't have when I was five years old? Well, God has a plan. A plan. He has a solution. And so we see that as a theme all throughout the book of Proverbs. And that is also in chapter Proverbs 5. That's why I mentioned it. Uh, let's look at Proverbs 5, verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Listen to godly wisdom. Listen to your believing parents. Get this ingrained in your brain now while you are young. As you're becoming... A man, don't depart from the words of my mouth. Don't forget this advice. Keep your, what's the advice? Keep your way far from her. Who? Uh, the woman you shouldn't be messing around with or even looking at. What practical advice? Boy, do we need that today, don't we? I mean, we had a problem with pornography in the 60s and 70s. But now with the electronic age, I mean, it's just over the top. It, it is everywhere. So we need this advice for young men more than ever in the history of the world. Keep your way far from her. So now it's not just staying away from a physical woman. It's an illegitimate woman you see everywhere in the culture, on your computer, in the, even in the advertisements, on your television, between uh, com uh, commercials, between an NBA basketball game or sports, in your public high school, plastered all over the walls, your secular university campus. It's everywhere in the conversation of people that you might work with. And here's the warning. Keep your way far from her, the illegitimate woman, a distorted view of sexuality and personal intimacy. Verse 9, don't fall for it. Don't fall for the illegitimate tempting of an illegitimate woman who is not your wife, lest you give your sexual vigor to others that aren't your spouse and your years to the cruel one, lest strangers be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods. Go to the house of an alien. Immorality can destroy your life in every area, including financially. Verse 11, and there will be consequences, natural consequences. You will groan as a result of compromising in this area. You'll be consumed, says verse 11. So that's the thing to avoid. That's the wrong thing. Don't go down that path. And then God gives the proper solution. Here's the biblical plan and the blessed one from God, and that's verse 15. Okay, young man, if, you're, if you have a desire to get married and you're thinking about women, that desire came from God. It can be distorted and skewed from your own personal sin, but the desire is a good thing and it came from God. So if you are, say, a uh, sophomore in high school um, or whenever that kicks in and you say you're a believer and you're a Christian, then this is for you, verse 15. Drink, okay, guys, drink water from your own cistern. Drink water from your own water fountain. Be satisfied from only that which rightfully belongs to you. What are you saying? Uh, that if you have any desire for sexual expression to be fulfilled, then it needs to be with the appropriate 
woman and that is only your wife and your wife alone. Any other expression of it is illegitimate. Don't, don't go there. That's what that means. This is metaphorical. Like I said uh, earlier, that it is sexuality is referred to metaphorically. Here's a perfect example. Drink water from your own cistern. Kiss your own wife and your own wife alone. That's what it means. And fresh water from your own well. By the way, if you're kissing your wife and your wife alone and finding fulfillment with her, then that's fresh water. That's clean water. That's blessed water. If you're doing it with another woman who's not your wife, it's dirty water. It's poisonous water. 16. Should your springs be dispersed abroad and go to other women? Streams of water in the streets of women who don't even belong to you? Women you're not even committed to you? Women you don't have a relationship before God with? Women that you're not married to? Don't do that. Verse 17. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Uh, Keep your uh, desires and affections to yourself to be reserved for your wife and your wife alone. Verse 18. And let your fountain be blessed. So this is when you get married. And then God finally provides that woman that is rightfully yours and you are husband and wife and you both know the Lord and then God is blessing the physical intimacy in your marriage relationship. Here is the blessing. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed. That's talking about your physical uh, intimacy, your sexuality. God wants to bless the fact that you are made in his image as a sexual being. He wants it to be fulfilled. He wants it to be satisfying. He wants it to be enjoyed and pleasurable. And that's verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. That means the woman that you married when you were younger, your first wife that God gave you, the one that you have all life long. Enjoy her, enjoy her not just when you, when you get married, enjoy her not just while you were young, enjoy her all of your days for the rest of your life so that even when you're older and you've been married 50 years, you can still rejoice in the wife of your youth, the one that you married when you were younger. Rejoice. See that idea of pleasure, enjoying? And again, it's with these innuendos. It's not just rejoice in your wife, like your wife, be happy about your wife. No, it's literally physically enjoy her. He gets graphic in verse 19. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, as a, just a beautiful, genteel deer. It's gracious and appealing. And as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. There's the pleasure of it for the husband. Let her breasts satisfy you all the time, all of your days, continually. Uh, it's in the perfect te- or the present tense, meaning always and continual. This should be a regular habit for the husband and the wife, enjoying one another in every conceivable way, even physically. Their bodies belong to one another. This is by God's design. Divine purpose of sex is for pleasure is that a beautiful thing i can't believe i hadn't heard one guy say amen but anyway and rejoice in the wife of your youth be at the end of verse 19 be exhilarated always with her love verse 20 for why should you my son be exhilarated with an adulteress and pollute and mess up everything so the divine purpose of physical intimacy is for procreation it is for partnership it is for pleasure and then d is for purity Ongoing, regular, physical, romantic intimacy between husband and wife helps preserve moral purity in your life. To preserve moral purity. Paul will talk about this further in 1 Corinthians 7. If you do not have the gift of singleness, and the gift of singleness is if you have really a divine, supernatural gift or ability to be content being single the rest of your life and not having the need to get married. And you can have self-control over your desires. And the, you don't need to be fulfilled romantically, physically, intimately, or sexually. And you can maintain a moral and practically pure life and have total contentment doing that. That is the exception. That is very rare. And I've, I've thought about it over the years. I've been a Christian. I've come across these amazingly gifted people every once in a while. It's very rare. Uh, a brother who discipled me back when I got out of seminary and I had my first job teaching at a Christian high school. 20 years older than me and loved the Lord and knew the Lord and was the chairman of the Bible department. And we met every Friday in the morning for breakfast, for prayer and discipleship and mentoring. And he was 50 at the time and single and c- as content as can be. Never been married. And he's pretty convinced he's never going to get married. And 
He was fully given to ministry and teaching the Bible and about the happiest, most satisfied guy I've ever met in my life. And I was convinced this, this man has this true, rare gift of singleness. I met a, my wife and I met a, an older saint, a woman, Ruth with the truth, who was 70 years old. And she had the same giftedness and contentness and love and for the Lord and given her life wholly for him in ministry. Never got married. Interesting thing about her, she agreed that, yeah, I guess I'm 70. I, I guess I do have the gift of singleness. But she did say, growing up, she always thought she'd get married. And the years went by and decades went by, and then now she's 70. And she's like, oh, I guess I have the gift of singleness. But she was not at all discontent. She wasn't bitter at God. She didn't feel like she got left out or burned. But it was the legitimate gift that is so rare. Because generally speaking, uh, it is not good for the man to be alone. That's uh, God's plan for most of humanity. So if you can live your life with absolute moral purity in this area without ever being married, then you probably have that gift. But the rest of us who don't have the gift of singleness, as you uh, enter into uh, the time in your life where your body changes and your desires change and your hormones kick in and you realize, wow, I want to be married and I don't have the gift of singleness and then you need an outlet and you need to be satisfied and that is by God's design and it is a good thing and it's supposed to happen in the context of marriage. And until you get married, you need help staying pure, don't you? Well, I've talked to enough people, men and women, that didn't have the gift of singleness, weren't married, and they're just burning in their passions until they get married. And that's the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7. They're burning, and I can't, I can't have self-control, and I need to get married. And, and that's one of the reasons why it's not good for a man to be alone. He needs that perfect complement. And one of the many ways that a wife can compliment a man who doesn't have the gift of singleness is to fulfill him and his desires that he has in terms of his physical needs and vice versa as well and paul will talk more about that but if you don't have the gift of singleness you are of marrying age and you are not married you are going to battle with purity in your life from one degree to another and you're going to have to that's a very intimate personal thing first of all you're going to talk you're going to have to talk to god about it need his strength his help the indwelling holy spirit to assist you to restrain you and this is an area of life where a desire that is so strong and so passionate and so really beyond our human control in light of our finiteness and our sinfulness, you need more than God's help in terms of you need human accountability in this area of your life. And the scriptures are pretty clear about that. You need other people, other saints to help you to provide accountability. And we'll talk more about that as well starting next week so you need god's help you need to pray to him you need to ask for his provision his protection uh, and also his help to provide you with the perfect spouse and and soon says paul in first corinthians 7 and in the meantime having brothers and sisters help you and protect you and put you in an environment and uh, whatever else is in the words of jesus you know if you've got to pluck out your eye pluck out your eye take precautions make parameters get accountability if you've got to cut off your hand cut off your hand do what you need to do take extreme measures in this area so it doesn't consume and dominate your life because it can it can and having a spouse to fulfill those desires and those needs that are God-given in the context of marriage is a beautiful thing that helps bring purity in your life, satisfaction in your life. Think of even Martin Luther back in the 1500s wrote on this topic. He was a very passionate man. I mean, he was like full throttle on all of his passions. And it was also true in terms of his sexuality. And so he was thankful for the wife that God had given him. He tried to be a celibate priest for a while. He said, oh, that didn't work. That was painful. That was impossible. Then he read scripture and he ended up becoming born again. And then he ended up getting married. And he married a former nun who was also celibate. And then they came to experience the biblical model of marriage and being satisfied with one another. And he, he wrote on this very openly because he knows it was in the Bible. And one of his statements was that uh, being physically intimate with his wife at least two, uh, two times a week keeps the devil away in his life. That's what he said. And then John Piper wrote a book not too long ago on the same thing. This topic of biblical sexuality. He quotes Luther. And Piper believes the same thing. Two to three times a week for me keeps the devil away. And then C.J. Mahaney, he wrote his book. And he even gets more graphic. And I'm not going to quote him here at church. 
You can read it yourself. But it's true. If you don't have the gift of singleness, you need a spouse to help protect your purity by God's design through fulfillment with one another. So the divine purpose of physical intimacy from God's point of view for procreation, for partnership, for pleasure, for purity, and then finally as a picture. Your marriage, including physical intimacy with husband and wife, is to be a picture of the church, of Jesus Christ being married to his church that will culminate someday really in an actual wedding where Jesus Christ comes in glory to take his church with him and there will be a spiritual wedding and it will be in heaven and it will be all over the world, the entire universe to see where Jesus Christ marries his perfect, spotless, precious bride whom he has been preparing for at least 2,000 years now. And when Jesus marries his church, it will be an eternal marriage unlike marriages that happen now the relationship you have right now in terms of your marriage it is not eternal it is temporal it is short term it is only for this life human marriage will pass away as an institution and will be swallowed up in the perfect model of jesus christ being married to his church for all eternity and jesus will have intimacy with his church not sexual intimacy as we know it right now The physical intimacy that husband and wife have right now is actually supposed to be a living metaphor or a living parable to remind us of the glory that is coming that is greater of Christ being married to His church. Think about that. If you are a Christian, add that to your worldview. If you are married, every time you and your spouse have physical intimacy with one another, it is to the glory of God. It is a proclamation of Christ and His church and their intimacy. And even the intimacy that the Father has with Jesus. I think of John 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God. Literally, the Word, Jesus, in the beginning, was toward God, the Father, face-to-face with the Father, intimate with the Father. That is picturesque of a man and a woman in their closest intimacy, face-to-face. That's what it says about Jesus and the Father in terms of their intimacy with one another. And that's the same kind of intimacy that Jesus Christ will have with His church for all eternity. Human marriage and human sexuality as we know it is fading away and only for this life to be enjoyed. As Jesus said in Luke, that we'll be like the angels in heaven where we won't be given in marriage with one another having physical intimacy sexually uh, with husbands and wives. It'll be raised to a higher spiritual yet physical level somehow and there will be great satisfaction and contentment for all eternity, it's just, it'll be greater than what we anything we can experience here on this earth. It is beyond comprehension. It is something to be desired and looked forward to. It will be perfect. That is amazing. And so Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5.32. That's the key verse there. Where he talks about how husbands and wives are to relate to one another on this earth. And then when he's done, he says, actually, ideally, what I'm talking about is not just husband and wife. I'm talking about Christ's relationship to his church. Always keep that in mind. Always keep that in the back of your mind or the forefront of your mind when it comes to your marriage and if you are a Christian couple, ultimately what you stand for and represent. So even unbelievers looking at you and watching your marriage, it should be a model or a reflection or that something there is different. At a minimum, at least, you're thinking about your marriage on a spiritual and eternal plane with eternal implications. That'll set you apart from the rest of the world and their very myopic view of marriage. God is to be glorified in our relationships including our marriage. And with that, let's go ahead and go to the Father and ask Him for prayer and help for all of us in this really most personal area of our lives. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for Your Word that is sufficient and addresses every area of our life, even physical intimacy and the fact that we're made in Your image in that regard, that we have desires really of all sort. And we want to cast those into Your lap. We need Your help. We need your guidance. We need the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us and minister to us. We need brothers and sisters in the church around us to help us, Lord. God, first start by changing any wrong thinking that we have, whether it's from experience or what we've accumulated over the years from other teachings that undermines undermines your word or just is wrong and unbiblical. And we need to think right. And that will begin uh, our journey on the right and holy path. Thank you for Paul's openness and his honesty in 1 Corinthians 7 and how we, Lord willing, through this study over the next couple of weeks can help our marriages, maybe even heal some of our marriages and 
bring greater fulfillment to many other marriages and that ultimately our goal is that we would glorify you in every area of our life, including our marriage. And uh, we also pray for those who aren't married or they have the gift of singleness or, Lord willing, it just hasn't happened yet, but will we entrust them to you as well. And Father, continue to be our teacher on this topic. Help us to glorify you in every area of our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.